Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley, and I've been in the family office investing space for over 20 years. Stefan Pauls is a serial entrepreneur with a strong background in the private equity industry. His career started at BCG. He started and sold a fintech company during the dot-com era, worked at KKR when it was still a small firm, and grew along with it, and then left to start his own company in 2016 called Moonfair, which is a private equity investing platform, making top-tier funds available to retail and institutional investors at lower minimums. Stefan got his bachelor's degree from the University of Mannheim with high distinction and his PhD in economics from the University of Trier. We talk about his very interesting educational and entrepreneurial journey, what KKR was like when it all fit in one room, the challenges of starting a company and getting initial traction, the technological challenges of building a private equity platform, and what he thinks about the future of the space. Please enjoy my interview with Stefan Pauls. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. So tell us where you were born. I grew up in Hamburg, which is the northern part of Germany, pretty soon then moved to a, a town close to Frankfurt, the financial center of Germany called Wiesbaden, where I went for school and basically stayed there until I was 18, before then I left Germany for university. Were your parents in finance? Anybody in the family? No, not at all. Very conservative background. My father was a lawyer and my um, mom, she was in history and then serving as a mom uh, for the family. So uh, think about us as a middle class, pretty academic, very interestingly, very performance-oriented household. What do you mean performance? Three boys, always competition, whether it's in sports or music or academics. My father taught us to read balance sheets at P&Ls at the age of six or seven. So pretty early, we were confronted with the real world, and there was always a strong push to performance. So I spent most of my time doing really, of course, my, my school, but also playing the piano. I wanted to become a professional piano player at a certain stage. So I was basically, my life was school and playing piano and some academics. And when did you, what did you study at Mannheim? My passion was in music, but I figured out pretty early on that the other strong desire and passion was really in business and in particular in finance. So I started to study business administration in Germany first uh, at the University of Mannheim. I combined it with physics, which is another interest of mine. So I love math and everything that has to do with science. So I did that. Then I went for a year or so as a research assistant to Harvard University, where I wrote my master thesis, came back, and then I studied another year in France at the Grande École, which was another really in, in incredible, enriching experience in my young, early stages. What did you write your master's thesis about? Pretty interesting one, a capital asset pricing model. Already the first thing in finance, Gene Farmer and Kenneth French, very famous Professors from US, Gene Trauma even got the Nobel Prize related to CapM, the capital asset pricing model. And I did an empirical study whether it really would hold and could be validated for the German stock market. Got lots of data back there in the 80s and 90s, but it turned out not to be valid for or uh, not to be valid for the entire period, interestingly, for the German uh, stock market. It was a great research piece. And brought me closer to finance. And at the time, what did you intend to do? Did you want to go into business? At that stage, where after I had been to Harvard and to this Grande Call, it was very clear for me two options that I was envisioning at that point in time. One was consulting, the typical path, the McKinsey's, BCGs, and Baines of this world. And the other one was, frankly, investment banking and M&A, and I decided for the former. So I joined then in the early 90s, 1993, I joined BCG. What was your main takeaway from the BCG model that helps you today? For me, it's an incredible education program for young professionals. What you really learn is to conceptualize, 
to analyze problems, but you also are able to visualize your findings in form, form of presentations or papers. It's a, a very intellectually data-driven approach to business. Um, and it has a clear reason for being. What I was missing, Joe, after a couple of years, and I love what I've been doing with BCG. It was really an incredible time. You know, I got my first phone and my first car and my first salary and so on. I, I, I really enjoyed the time, but I found it after a while a bit frustrating not to be in the position to decide, so not to be the principal. So just being on the sideline and being called a coach who tells people what to do was not what I figured out at that point in time I wanted to do. I wanted to be more in, in the driver's seat. Uh, and the more I realized that the more my desire was evolving uh, to become an entrepreneur and do things really on my own. But you still had the academic bug. You went and finished your PhD at Trier, correct? Totally correct. Uh, that is uh, owed, so to say, to my very strong interest in, in academics, which I mentioned earlier. I loved studying. I did really, really decently in, in my academics at the university and wanted to continue this. Uh, and frankly, I also wanted to get one year off. I took the chance when I was writing my PhD time really to do some other stuff as well at the same time. But it was a very important part. But I didn't do this as an academic career. So in the German context, you don't have to go five years to university as you have to do so in the States or so to get your PhD. In my case, I wrote this PhD thesis in a year. And what was the thesis on? That was an interesting one. It was uh, called Business Migration. It's a concept that you might have heard of, basically, where businesses that are adjacent to each other suddenly become the same. And I wrote it about gasoline stations, who at that point in time in Europe developed and became and migrated into convenience stores. So they made the main money, not anymore by selling gasoline. That was just to get clients into the gasoline station. They made their money uh, by selling food and other stuff beverages and so on, and cigarettes over the counter, in particular in off times when other shops were closed. And, and this entire concept, which of course doesn't appear only in, in convenience stores and gasoline stations, you say have the same in telecom, where suddenly the telco players became uh, providers. I think about today's world of media content, uh, which was a very separated business before, before these days. So it was a new concept, business migration. And it still, by the way, helps me a lot when I think about strategically how industries evolve. What do you think that academia gets right and wrong about business? Because you've had a foot in both worlds now. Think about where we stand today when it comes to availability of knowledge. It is, for me, what you learn at university, and this is what I keep on telling my children and other people who are asking me, it is a way of thinking. Yeah, you are learning to memorize uh, things. You learn to learn, as I say. You learn to connect uh, certain pieces of, of facts, data, in order to create information. And hopefully you also learn and develop your own uh, techniques and skill set when it comes to creativity. This is what, for me, academics should stand for. Everything else becomes a commodity. Knowledge is available. ChatGPT is, is better than we are when it comes to bar exam in law or whatever it is. So it has to be something that has to do with creativity, with connection of separated, in a way, data pieces to create context. And then, of course, all what has to do with communication and so on, what you also learn at university. So skill-driven. This is what academics is. It's not the knowledge part of it. Let's talk about your first entrepreneurial endeavor, first five. What was it that got you to actually go out on a limb and, and start that? No, more than happy to. And Joe, there is a common theme when it comes to my companies that I've been founding and founded in the past, which all of them, or the idea uh, that stands behind them, derives out of a real need. So when I had, I was at BCG, we were running a banking benchmarking study in private wealth management and private banking, what the wirehouses do in your country or the independent financial advisors. 
And we figured out to our huge surprise that there were basically no data where you could compare the performance in private banking or wealth management from a Goldman Sachs versus a Morgan Stanley, a Citibank, or a, a private bank, a Julius Baer or so. So figuring out that a very intransparent market, if you trust a million or so to your banker, you have no clue whether this guy is really doing good with your money or not compared to others. And you're paying quite some money for it. So our idea with First Five was that we wanted to make this market totally transparent and basically asked wealthy private individuals from various banks, the cross-section of over 100 private banks and wirehouses in Europe, uh, please open up your portfolio data, show us what kind of risk your portfolio manager takes in, on your behalf, and um, uh, more importantly, even show us the costs um, for, for the service and the performance. So we got suddenly a full database, risk, return, and costs across private banks, in, in, in particular in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, which we then could use. And the name First Five came out of the idea that we didn't want to publish the bad ones. This was only information if you were a paying customer. But First Five, we published always in all media the best five private banks in, in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So we got a lot of press and PR for our services. And if you were a customer, you got, of course, the full list and could clearly see where you would stand with your Citibank or with your Goldman portfolio or with your private banker from whatever, Morgan Stanley. So a nice idea. And the data that we got, so to say, from the millionaires, from the more wealthy people, we published for the less wealthy people so that they could see suddenly what a Goldman Sachs really does for their wealthy and highly paying clientele clients. So it was a little bit like a Robin Hood thing. We took it from the rich and we got it, we gave it to the less rich ones. And very similar, by the way, it's this it was adjacent thinking to Unfair that to both of us in these days, the issue was it didn't pay out. Uh, the company is it became successful, but it took years. Uh, because in the beginning, the banks were fighting us. They didn't want the transparency. They didn't like it. Um, customers were shying away because their relationship managers told them, look, you shouldn't work with these guys. That doesn't make sense for you and so on. Uh, but the company is still out there. It's market leader in its uh, business segment. We were a bit early, to be honest. And then timing was not good because 9-11 and then following the dot-com uh, crisis came our way. Uh, so we we really had had a tough time. Uh, we we managed to get through the time, but uh, it was a semi-success, I would call it. We we made some money, but um, it was not like you know the creation of the next unicorn here in, in in Europe. But the company is still out there. It's it's market leader. And one learning I took away, amongst others, from these days was things always take longer than you originally think or you anticipate. We thought that after five years, we would go to the stock exchange and IPO this company. The company now, as I said, it is still out there, but it took 15 years, one five to get there and not five years. Everybody who's doing something new, innovative, has to be patient. And how did you get the banks to give you that information? That was the tricky part. Some banks were more collaborative. They understood it, but the driver, and that was then also part of a lawsuit uh, to be clarified, who is the owner of the data? Yeah, If you trust your money, a bank, and your bank was buying some Tesla and some whatever, automotive and some Google and Alphabet and so on, and you have an asset allocation and certain stocks that the bank has selected, so to say, on your behalf. At the end, the truth is you as a customer, you are the owner of your data. So the customers, the private wealth managing customers, they gave us the data for an electronic interface with the bank and the bank had to come comply. And by assembling all these uh, data sets, we then suddenly had, or have, the company still has, the largest set of benchmarking data and wealth management in, in, in the Bach in the German, Austrian and Switzerland region. So I was there back in 99, but maybe for some of our younger listeners, maybe you could tell us what it was like, what the technology was like at the time. Was this an easy thing for you to spin up 
or was this something that was rather more complicated? Oh, I love I love your question. I, I didn't get this question, by the way, for 20 years, and I don't know why, because as you rightly say, people cannot imagine how difficult it was to set up in from today's perspective, extremely easy version of a I would not even call it technology platform of a web page with some databases in the back. My team today in Moonfair, and I guess we will talk about it, uh, for them it would take a week to build what we built over two years back then because it was complex. The code was not really adaptable. Uh, it was not built in modular. We, we, we had even hardware issues uh, that you could not um, imagine. There was no open source code. There was no cloud. Um, and we were reliant on one provider. So the technology really became very soon a bottleneck for the company. And then also in terms of money, what we spent millions in these days in technology for, as I said, a pretty, at least in today's terms, simple outcome at the end of the day. So it was a very different world, very different. When it comes to how you, you run a company, how you build a company, how you do marketing, PR, it was much more similar to today's world than compared to the technology side of things. Well, we'll get to the dramatic growth of Moonfair in a few minutes, but I, I'm interested in thinking back then what you learned working with technology teams and working with developers and trying to scale a business. Obviously, you had an idea to go for an IPO. What became clear to me is that very early on in the 90s, and think about it, what happened since then we had the dot-com crisis. Uh, people were crying and said, technology is dead, this is all bullshit, this is a hocus pocus. Then we had the grand financial crisis, you remember this, technology is dead. Then we had COVID. Some people told me technology is dead. Now we have another issue with inflation and interest rates going up and people telling me it's dead. What I figured out though very early on in my career, and, and this is, was probably one of the most important breakthrough moments, call it mentally or in terms of insights I had in my entire career is te that technology is ruling the world. Far, by the way, before Andreessen, Mark Andreessen said te technology or software is eating um, the world, uh, I, I figured out the enormous potential uh, and the scalability of technology uh, already in these early days. Uh, and this is why since then, and I said it earlier, I studied physics, I have a strong interest for science and math and all this. Uh, since then, the late 90s, I became passionate about any form of technology and have been following it since then. Later at KKR, of course, during my time at First Five, I was never, I, I did some coding and so on, but I was never a CTO, a chief technology officer. I'm more of a, probably a CEO type of person or more on the sales marketing side and then on the technology side. But I understood the beauty of technology. Is there anything you learned in particular from your exit from First Five? Yeah, look, it was an so-ish uh, exit. I said that we made some money, we returned some money to the investors, but we were in a troubled position, to be honest. What I learned about it is uh, a huge, I always had this, this is probably more an education thing for my youth, but I, I always felt really responsible for my company, for, for my team, uh, for the outcome, what, what came out. Uh, the exit was the best we could do for the company. And I said that it became a huge uh, success story in particular also uh, after our, our exit to a smaller private equity player, we didn't optimize for price. We optimized for the best home. And the story of First Five really tells us that was the right decision because the company is still private in private hands and the company is market leader in its field. So let's talk about KKR in London. You were there during their period of tremendous growth, but I think a lot of folks today who think of KKR as this behemoth don't realize that it was really just a couple dozen people at that point, correct? So it was amazing. The first uh, firm meeting uh, I had with KKR, I joined them uh, in 2004. And I think globally, I was number 26 or so. So 26 people. We had offices in a, a pretty large office in, in New York, uh, a small office in Menlo Park, close to San Francisco, and then just opened London two years before I joined or so. And when we had that first meeting with Henry and George, Henry Kravis and George, Roberts, the two co-founders, 
we were literally in one small room. No one had a speaker or microphone. Everybody knew exactly who is doing what, who is contributing, totally transparent, what you were doing or what you were not doing. Incredible amount of people, super talented. It was a boutique. And then brings me back to a point that I said earlier, 20 years later, and it sounds long, but it's such an incredible, you said it, enormous growth. KKR now has some 500 billion in assets under management. Back there, it was 10 when I joined. 50 times more and some 2,500 professionals across 25 offices. Incredible. And one of the things I learned from Henry and George is it's the same with the world of investments. Same when you're an entrepreneur. You have to be patient. Yeah, you you have to build one step after the the other. It's like mountain hiking. Yeah? You go and you go and you might go backwards uh, uh, in a certain year and then you go up again, but it takes time. There was, at the, in these days, there was no German uh, office. We had a strong German team, but everybody was operating out of uh, London. And I joined in 2004 their operating team and was building it out. It's a team that really does the work and value creation work and initiatives with the portfolio companies. So I was building this out and was a member of the tech industry group and media group. And then in 2013 or so, I joined the deal side. So I moved sides and took over the responsibility then for the German market for all our products. Okay, so the German market, 2013 or so, was flat. Where did you see opportunity? What kind of companies were you approaching? When you go back to the, so to say, the origins of the industry in 2007 and eight and six, we saw a lot of mega deals. Yeah, the industry called it club deals, where a Blackstone and partners with a Pereira and the KKR, and they took Alliance Boots, which became then Walgreens, by the way, in the U.S. private multi-billion transaction post-financial crisis. The industry was in a very different state still. A, a bit, uh, I would call it, shocked from what has happened in, in, in the financial markets and then the impact on the portfolio. So people were still very much focused on working and improving the portfolio, get companies back on track. And then the other theme that emerged uh, in particular for Germany was a focus on mid-sized companies. Yeah, the famous German companies, hidden champions, you would call it. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, uh, Joe, this is a start that I was not aware of uh, back then at KKR, but 90%, and I take your country, 90% of all countries with a revenue of more than 100 million US dollar are in private hands and not in the public markets. Actually, the number of IPOs, you know this, but for me, it was another striking figure. The number of IPOs in the US is, is not going up since 2000. It's declining. So the opportunity set in, in, in private markets is enormous. And back there at KKR in 2010, 11, 13, we, we were launching an initiative that was in particular targeting those mid-sized German hidden champions in, in the German Mittelstand. And there I have I've been involved with various transactions or various companies. There was one auto repair chain, a very large one I was heading as a chairman. I've been involved, which is a different business, very deeply into the second largest European broadcasting company these days. I've been even sitting on a board of a soccer club from Berlin, a company. So pretty diverse, but they did a lot of telco, uh, cable, and, and tech in these days. Is there a difference from the perspective of the PE partner between acquiring American and EU businesses? Is there a different framework for thinking about those? I don't think that, that from a skill or technical standpoint, it's very similar. I think where the differences are, and this is why you need, in order to be successful, I'm convinced to be locally embedded. And frankly, U.S. Americans prefer to do business with U.S. Americans and probably Europeans with Europeans and Germans with Germans. So the the cultural element, and in particular also in Europe, the language element is extremely important. When you're in France, you have to speak French. And clearly in Germany, when you find an, 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 a mid-sized company that has been owned by a family for 200 years, it's an advantage if you share the same cultural background and origins. So I would say when it comes to the soft side or the s- soft skills of business, there are clearly differences between the two 
continents, but when it comes to to the skill side of doing deals as far as you do some venture now with Seven Global Capital, your own firm. Do you have a framework for looking at investments influenced by your time at BCG and KKR? Do you look at these things differently? Totally. Totally. Joe, one thing that I learned, and I became a big believer in private equity, and there is this famous quote, and I want to lean on Henry here because it is illustrating what I, what I want to say is, he always says, every fool can buy a company. You just have to pay enough. And that's so true because the real work starts once you have bought a company. It is about active ownership. It's about putting the right incentives into play. It is about what in terms of operational improvement, strategic improvement, what is your plan with the company? You as an owner, you need to be the right owner for this company. Otherwise, you shouldn't touch it. You need to bring something to this company that others don't. And that is exactly the philosophy behind Seven Global Capital. Seven Global Capital is a boutique fund, but it's innovative. It's totally new. Why? Because it is a fund that a US-based fund It's investing into growth stage companies in the US. But our differentiating value proposition is that we help these companies, US companies, to with their expansion into Europe. With our network, our understanding of the European market, think about the Facebooks in the early stages. They came over first country, in this case was the UK. In today's world, U.S. companies have to and do internationalize much faster than like 10 years ago. But most of U.S. funds, think about a Sequoia or an Andreessen or a Lightspeed, they have no operations in Europe. And frankly, in, in some cases, a limited understanding of the market. And this is where we can help with our network. Always, you need always to have a reason for being when you want to own a company. And in our case, it's clearly that we can support when it comes to expansion into the European uh, countries. So you had a nice spot at KKR, but you decided to go out on a limb again with Moonfair. What was that first day like? Why did you make that decision? George, that's a great one and a difficult one. And, and I tell you why. When I was so happy with KKR, really, I, I had a great partnership with 99% of all people there. I love Henry, George. I love Johannes Hood, who was my boss and running. Uh, the European office, my team, it was really home. The only thing that I didn't like is it was not my company. I was working for Henry and for George at the end of the day. I was a shareholder, became a shareholder during the IPO, but they have founded the company and they were at the end driving and, and calling the shots. Uh, fair enough. And after BCG, I, you know that I told it with first five, I had the first time the feeling of creating something that came, that was my brainchild. And that feeling never went away from me. Uh, and this is why instead of committing for another five, 10 years uh, period for the next fund, and that was exactly the time when uh, we at KKR were raising the European next private equity fund, and I had to commit for another five years to be part of that, I decided, no, I was 47 or so. I really wanted to go back to my entrepreneurial roots and try something uh, with the aspiration that was not existing out there. I didn't want to do something or create another bookstore or another Amazon or another digital shoe delivery service or whatever. That was not uh, in, in my interest. I wanted to create something that was not out there, a real innovation. But it was it, it's not that you sit there, Joe, as you, and this is your question is pointing to that you sit there and then I went out. It was clear to me that I would give up a lot of security, certainty, my career with KDR, a really very interesting income, being secure, living in the London ecosystem. I left everything behind, friends, um, of course, relationships. The, the biggest thing, by the way, that you lose is your business card. Suddenly, it's not anymore KKR. It's just Stefan Pouts. It's very different if you ask for a meeting just with your name. And this was, but I wanted to do it. And I said to myself, even the chance that I would could even become close to, in terms of success, what Henry and George had achieved with KKR. But that was not my thinking. It was not about, it has to be the biggest and most renowned and uh, recruited thing. I wanted to do something on my own, take the risk. Many people told me, don't do it. 
Um, you know, we have four children, so there's a huge responsibility also in my private life. I was already not the youngest anymore, not like in my early 30s. I was late 40s. So people said, why don't stay with KTR? You retire in a couple of years and have a good life. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to create something in my, call it, second uh, half of my professional life. And this is why I stepped out and had then pretty soon this idea about Moonfair. So you were in stealth mode for two years. What were you doing during that period? A typical thing from private equity is do your due diligence. And before I really took the step to put real money behind Moonshare, the idea is very important. But Joe, believe me, many people have ideas, but very few do something with it. So having an idea is great, but the tricky part is executing it, building, making something out of it. And I was a little bit concerned about, is it really a great idea uh, for various reasons? First and foremost, no one else was doing it. And if you do something, if, it's, if you're the only one driving in one direction, everybody else is coming the other way, uh, you can say, I am right, but most likely you're not, and the others are. So I was a little bit insecure, and this is why I put a lot of uh, effort and emphasis on due diligence. So really, I, I, I did market surveys and interviews. I flew over to, to New York to ask people. I talked to people, of course, in the industry, in private equity. I talked to clients. And I tell you what, Joe, the feedback on, on the idea was everything but positive. Everybody told me, one guy, a very senior, an iconic banking guy in the European system, former top partner from McKinsey, CEO of a large bank, he told me it's the most stupid idea, business idea I've ever heard. My best friends told me, Stefan, who on earth is doing it? There is nobody else. Why should anybody on earth trust a company he has never heard of with the name Moonfair, 100,000 US dollars to invest into something that's called private equity? Unbelievable. Go back and either you hire and you become again part at KKR, or why don't you do something proven like a robo-advisor or something? This is the feedback I've got. and But I kept on doing. I believed in it. And it took me, frankly, two years to become 100% comfortable with my idea in order to put real money behind it. And then it was not easy to hire and recruit the first team. Because if, if there's no role model out there, no blueprint, if you can tell another story about ChatGPT and OpenAI, of course, and you say we're doing something similar in Europe, people will probably join you. If you tell them we are doing something no one else has done before, but it makes sense, it's a bit more difficult. Where did you come up with the name Moonpair? We had a very cheesy slogan or theme in the beginning. We called it Access the Inaccessible. As Moonfair is giving access to people who haven't, they didn't have access to private equity starting at 100,000 US dollar so that they can invest directly into the likes of KKR and Carlyle and you name it. So we were giving them something and opening up something they didn't have in the past in that regard. So this is why we said in access the in inaccessible. And then we were thinking, what is, you know, dreamland in a way and people admire and where is a high aspiration and some mystery associated with, and we came up with the moon. And this is why the moon, you can't access it. Many people are addicted to it. It's controlling the sea levels and so on. So the moon was set in stone as part of the name. And then I sent my team out and said, no, now come back with the rest because moon.com, you can't buy <laughs> It's not possible, yeah? And the team went out for a couple of drinks in Berlin, and they got drunk, and they came back with Moonshare. <laughs> That's the best branding story I think I've gotten so far. So it's very difficult to, to start a two-sided market. How did you kick that flywheel? No, oh, I love it. I love your question, because that is really, that was the most, most difficult thing. I, I still remember when I thought about it, in order to commit money to a private equity fund, I needed customer that would join me, that would become part of the community, that we could pool together in order to make the threshold of 10 million or so that gives you access to invest into a private equity fund. But in order to get these customers, I needed an offering. So I, I the first friend I asked, and I will never forget it, this is a, still a very close friend of mine, uh, he's a um, poet of uh, EQT. EQT is a large Nordic fund, also present in the meantime in the US. 
one of the top European players. And I asked him, can you give me access to EQT's Asian fund? And this guy, Markus, he's from Hamburg, as I am from the northern part where we do business with handshakes. He said to me, Stefan, look, I, I would love to, but where are your customers? And I said to Markus, look, Markus, that's exactly the issue. If you don't give me the allocation and I can go out and offer it to a few people, uh, I will never get these customers. And he said, he was thinking, and then he said, okay, let's assume I give you the 10 million allocation and you can invest. What happens if you don't come back with all your customers? If you don't manage to get them into the fund? And I said, okay, in this case, I will give you the 10 million. Do I tell you something? I didn't have the 10 million. Of course not. Where? Impossible. But we had a handshake. I totally believed I would be able to gather, to pool, to get people excited about that product. We went out. I called everybody I've ever met in my life, thinking who could be interested and, and able to invest and, 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 and join the community. And it took us 10 weeks or so, and we had the 10 million together. It's a chicken-egg issue. It is so chicken-egg. No one trusts you in the beginning. So the, the size of the firm doubled and then doubled again from 2019 to 2021. How did you personally cope with this expanding responsibility? And you basically went from three people to suddenly you had over 100, 150. Exactly. It looked plus the complexity because very soon, I think in 2020, 21, we started our international expansion. I think it was in 2020 already when we opened up Asia. It was nuts in, in Hong Kong. So it was international expansion, team growth, product growth, uh, number of funds, etc. In retro perspective, I found the first two years far more difficult than the years to come. Why? Probably my background from KKR was used to large numbers, large companies. So running a 200, uh, a shop with 200 people, in, in my view, is easier than 10, 15 people because you have already revenue, you can attract better talent, you have processes and you are forced to put processes. This. You cannot run a company above 100 people without processes because it's too large. It's not anymore, hey, do this and do that. So you have, you need those processes. And this is, is more my, my, my education. The beginning where everybody more or less was doing stuff they never did before. And I was literally, I don't know, I, I did over a thousand phone calls in the first to clients in the first six months. I was writing handwritten thousands of emails to make the company public and, and known in, in, in the broader public. And then the lack of trust, people asking you, okay, how many assets do you have? Oh, it's 10 million. Great. Let me join a little bit later when you are larger. So the first two years were far. And then with the success, of course, and the tremendous growth, we had other uh, challenges. But I, in, in retro perspective, I found them easier to manage, given my background, than building the company from scratch. You have almost 200 employees now. How are they allocated? How many are on sales? How many due diligence? How many are in operations? Moonfair is a customer-first digital native or digital first company. And this shows you how we allocate our people. Roughly half of the people, 50% are working in product and tech and design. It's a tech company. And if you go to the Moonshare page, it looks slick, it looks lean, it's beautiful, but it's only the top of the ice mountain, as I call it. The majority of the tech is underwater and you don't see it. So it's really, it's an, an incredible, powerful technology machine that the team that we have built. This is why we have half of the people in tech, and then we are marketing and, of course, customer-oriented. This is why we have some 30 people out of the 235, 40 people in the commercial functions, marketing and sales, and the rest is operations, compliance, of course, legal, and general admin. And what are the technological challenges to scaling this? How do you go from $2 billion to $10 billion? It's a fantastic question. And, and of course, we made uh, mistakes. When we started the company, uh, frankly, no one, uh, including myself, anticipated the rapid growth. Yeah, we, you said that the first, we, in every year, we have exceeded our budget by at least the factor two or three or four. And we were catching up and catching up with the growth. And what we didn't anticipate is really to build the platform 
in a modular, scalable way. I'll tell you in, in non-technical terms what I mean. And, and many U.S. people, by the way, U.S. players, and I have a huge admiration for our lovely colleagues from other competitors of ours in the U.S., they did the same mistake we did. We built our company only for Europe, only for one currency. Of course, in the U.S., you do the same. You are building it for U.S. dollar. Joe, you cannot imagine what it means. And if, you're, if you don't have a technical background, you, you can't probably. What it means to suddenly change a platform that is built in Europe, in English, to a platform that should accommodate Swiss francs or Great British Pounds. It's huge. If it's not built the right way. The same is we didn't anticipate that we would at a certain stage need the, the, the platform in 10, 15 different languages. Spanish, Italian, French, English, of course, German, Nordic languages, Japan, which is a very different system in terms of how you build the entire page. Let's think for a minute about the ultimate future of this space. And I'm thinking from a family office perspective, from an advisor perspective, do we end up with a Schwab offering a dashboard for everything all in one place, all at one price? Are we going to end up with very specialized offerings? What's your vision for the future? From a convenience perspective, and this is probably, if you think about it, at a certain point in time, which will be the reality because the, the customer at the end and customer benefit dictates the future. From a customer perspective, you would love to get everything out of one hand. Having said that, I don't see this in the foreseeable future. Why? Because the call it in, that, that typically came from the liquid world of things. If you think about a Blackhawk, if you think about a Fidelity, about a Vanguard, and so on. So the asset managers, Schroeders to some extent, of course, as well, they are not private markets managers. That's not in, in the core of their DNA. They, they, they have developed and, and did the democratization for public markets in the form of ETFs. And that's their DNA. Uh, they're catching up. And of course, uh, which is great, they have understood that private markets is a very important cornerstone of every strategy. And it's the future because the growth is there, because the market is not yet democratized. Many private individuals have no private equity in their portfolio, but they should, or private markets in general. So this is the future, and everybody has understood it, uh, but it's it's not yet there. This is why my guess is there are, and we are seeing this, we have dozens of banks. Fidelity is a large partner of ours in Europe and in Asia. We are working with them. They, they are leaning on our expertise, on our technology to, to grow their business as well. We have dozens of partners in the banking system that use white label, the Moonfair curated offering and our technology. I think that is the step that will be out there for the next at least couple of years and then at a certain stage, it might be that we as Moonfair partner with the Vanguard, or it might be also that we are more thinking in, in technology land, that we add with a very fresh technology what the Vanguards and Blackhawks are offering. So is the individual, are they paying for the software or are they paying for the access? For the curation. Access, in my view, Joe, will become a commodity. Yeah? Just offering KKR or there are 4,000 private equity funds out there. And you are an expert. Yeah, I read your, by the way, if I may say, impressive CV, very impressive CV, what you have seen, what you have done uh, in the investment and family office world. So you understand the difference between whatever a KKR US flagship fund or Blackstone or something uh, as opposed to whatever, the new kid around the block that came up with a new fund idea and is doing some stuff uh, in, in Florida. Uh, you know this. Uh, but for a private individual, it is extremely difficult to figure out of those 4,000 private equity funds, what are the best ones what's in terms of future returns and why are those ones the right ones for me. And you need someone in between from the industry because just playing private equity is a recipe for disaster. You will not see any outperformance. You cannot buy an index. It's not an ETF. If you buy an ETF, you will not make money. No outperformance. You make outperformance if you play with the best 25%, the top quartile, quarter managers in private equity. And to identify those is science and art together. 
And this is why you need people like us who are doing this job in your best interest, on your behalf, and are selecting the best funds. And then you need, as a second step, technology, because otherwise it becomes too cumbersome. You have to turn papers left center, and, and, and it's not really a great customer experience. And then thirdly, you need what is one of the issues we have solved. Um, people want liquidity. They want not to be forced into a private equity fund for 10 years, and then suddenly they have a change in their life. They lose their jobs. They are facing a divorce or whatever, and they need money. And this is why we have built a digital secondary marketplace where people de facto can trade in and trade out of their positions in private equity. So it's much more than access. It's curation, it's ease of use technology, and of course, it's also a path to liquidity. Is there a platform for co-investments as well? That's what we are. We are not a marketplace. Don't think about us where you like a market where you get your tomatoes and your cucumber and some other stuff. We are a digital investment manager, or I call it from a family office perspective, we are a complementary partner when it comes to private markets to complement your in-house capabilities because we have 20 people in the world covering all these funds and we are investment managers in a way that we also, you, you said it, started now to develop new strategies. Suddenly you can do and sign up for our co-investment fund. We are launching as we speak for direct deals, all curated, all in partnership with the likes of KKR and, and Blackstone and the others. So you can do co-investments, you can do direct deals, you can do fractions of deals. We will soon launch secondaries as another strategy. We have already basket products for US venture, for growth, for infrastructure, and for buyout. So think about Moonfair as a digital black rock for private markets. Where do you think advice and the advisor fits into all of this? Is this a B2C company or is this a B2B company? There is a clear need for an advisor for pretty substantial segment of the market. The average client I read it of in wealth management of UBS is 64 years old, average age. If you don't want to spend time on understanding stock markets and private equity and all these things, you probably need an advisor. Uh, but I tell you, Joe, the vast majority of the new generation, and that is driven by technology, but it's also driven by a shift in customer behavior. They don't need, they don't want, and they don't trust their advisor. And it's not me. I, I'm with UBS. I'm a typical advisor guy. But the new generation, the, the advisor has been replaced. And this is not only happening in financial services. Think about cinema. I used to read these magazines to decide whether I go into the next James Bond movie or whatever, Mission Impossible. And then if the journalist was telling me it's worth going, I probably would consider buying a ticket. Today, the entire advice in the new generation, and I'm talking about 40, up to 40, 45 years, has been replaced by your peer group. You are asking your friends, and you can do so in Snapchat or in Facebook, and you can reach 50, 100, 5,000. If I'm asking a poll on LinkedIn, 2,000 people give me kindly the answer. You can ask and reach a trusted source of knowledge, and it was where like-minded people that tell you it's worth watching the movie or not. And the same is happening in financial service advice. People are asking their peer group, what do you think about Tesla? Do you think it's still a good time to buy Alphabet? What do you think about all this AI? And so on. So the, the advisor in all industries in B2C is losing importance because of the availability of knowledge on one hand and availability of peer group knowledge, more important, trusted, knowledge on the other hand, which is replacing the traditional advisor. And then, of course, digital native, talking to your advisor is another step. You don't do it physically anymore. You want to do the transaction. Think about the incredible success of Robin Hoods in your country and the Revoluts and all the others. This is not going to stop. So the future probably doesn't belong the advisor. You've worked at a private equity fund. You know how much fundraising dominates the thinking there. How will platforms like this change the way private equity thinks about fundraising? It's not only us. And this is very important if I may underline this. The private equity companies are pushing to give more access to private individuals. 
I talked about the asset managers, the Blackhawks, the Fidelities, the Vanguards. They are also, as a middleman, so to say, very active and playing a fantastic role in making this happen. Then you have the banks at the wirehouses, the financial advisors, the IRAs in your country, the private banks in Europe. They are also have understood that they must offer their clients more than just um, a portfolio of stocks and bonds, which doesn't make a lot of sense when it comes to risk and return um, construction. So they have understood that private markets must become a substantial part of the portfolio of their clients. And then you have the final decision maker that who is the client and think about inflation. I know in the US it's coming down. In Europe, it's going to stay probably for the unforeseeable year future at three, four, five percent. So people are losing money every year net if you just play bonds or so. So there is a very strong need for it. So the entire ecosystem is working on it. And we are, of course, one in my view, important piece, because we bring to the entire equation, not only that we are a neutral marketplace curated, but also the technology element. And what is happening to, to your question is, I believe it's going down, 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 and down. What happened in stock markets this early in this last century, when stocks became available, it was only the very rich people, the Rothschilds and so on, that could buy stocks because the single stock price was so high. And now think about how the stock markets have been democratized. Now everybody can buy an ETF and play crypto or whatever. And the same is going to happen in private markets. It started with that the pension funds and the wealth managers and the large um, family offices could participate. Now with Moonfair in your country, it's the accredited investor. It's a term. There are 19 million out there. But our mission is not only to serve people that are already wealthy, my mission and why my team is working with me on this is we want to make this available to as many people as possible with products that fit their needs. We really want to democratize it and bring it down to 5,000 euros or at a certain stage, 2,000 euros that you can put in a private equity. Why? Because we believe if you have the right product and the right exit, we are serving and we are creating more prosperity for more people. And this is so much needed in the world. And uh, Joe, you know this, I know this, which is separated and by, by injustice and a need for more inclusion and for more true equity. And this is what we are doing. And this is what's going to happen in private markets. I'm totally convinced. And think about blockchain. What all this will open up when, you know, this technology and the regulation, once it will come together, in 10, 15 years, we will all trade tokens in certain private equity funds and not any more LP stakes. Okay, last question. Do you still play piano? I love it. I still play, but not enough. I played for the family. I'm a shy player, Joe. I normally never play in public, but we had a little Christmas or pre-Christmas year party and with some friends and there were the children. So we were singing Christmas songs and I was playing piano. Stefan Pauls, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wonderful insights. Joe, thanks so much for your time. It was terrific. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friends. Thank you.